You might remember I quoted um, a few times from the book All Things New by John Eldridge. And as we thought about the way he was reflecting on Athanasius from centuries and centuries ago, he kind of characterized it like this, that when it came to the corruption that Satan was responsible for among humankind, um, God said, I won't have it. Um, I won't let you have my covenant people. Um, and so God had designed his plan even before the creation of the world, and Jesus was that plan, and he was the answer to God's declaration, I won't have it. But the other thing that we noticed was that along with Romans, um, John Eldridge noticed that creation was in the same state, that creation was subject to corruption, and just as God said of his people, I won't have it, that Satan would corrupt them and take them away from me, so God says about his creation, um, I won't have it that Satan can turn it into disarray and the beauty of it can be marred and spoiled and finally destroyed and thrown away. And even though for many of us we had sort of a popular view um, of the future being this earth being destroyed and then there being something brand new created, when we go to Revelation we notice that it's not um, new things made but all things made new, which is entirely different, right? And I think it stretches our imagination into the future in a more beautiful way than that there is some other place that we really don't have any taste for, and there's a new creation that we really have no notion of how it will shape up. To think that there is an actual physical, material continuation between this creation and the next. So it makes us go into the future and imagine what is now and how what is now will look in the future because it's all things new and so all of the things that we have lost if we've been looking at the beatitudes will be new to us again the things we mourn will be restored to us and this beautiful planet that god created for us will be renewed this very planet this very town as we were driving here this morning over the escarpment the beauty of snow just struck me again. The beauty of snow before the sand makes it maneuverable, I get it. But the beauty of snow, the beauty of the sparkle of snow as it floats down with the sun beaming through that, that is God's handiwork. And our ability to appreciate that is from God as well. And so I have asked you to write some things or take pictures of some things or draw some things or sing some things that we would call postcards from the future. As you look at this creation, what do you see that you're sure is going to still be here in the new creation? Because it's beautiful and it's hardly corrupted. Um, what will be different about the things that we see? So I just want to show you some of the things that have come our way this week. And those who have sent them to me, if you feel like you want to put your hand up and just clarify why it is that for you this is a postcard from the future... This one is the one I began by showing you last week from Karen Hatton, and this is a, a freshwater fjord in Newfoundland. And she talks about imagining God having chiseled these, these rocks and these mountains. And you, you get that, that view, don't you? That However the, this took place, um, God designed what he has created for us, and it is beautiful. And we think of it as beautiful because we are his creation and we're given his imagination and we love to see what he has done for us. Here's another one that came last Sunday that absolutely delights me. 
This is from Joel. I don't think Joel is here this morning. So Joel is 10 or 11 years old. And this is what he drew for us um, that describes his postcard from the future, his view of heaven. So have a good look at that and see what you can pick out from what Joel has drawn for us. And I'm going to just read you exactly what he sent by way of explanation, and you can see it here too. I chose this design of heaven because in the Bible, when, the book, when in the book of Deuteronomy it was talking about Moses and the promised land, I thought the promised land would look like heaven. That's a reasonable assumption, isn't it? That if God was providing something here on earth called the promised land, maybe it's because he had in mind what he's providing for us in the, in the future in heaven. So he says, I like this because in the Bible it talked about when the pearly gates, and when I think of this, I think of the entrance to heaven. You can only enter it if you take the Lord your God as your Savior. That's the gospel pretty well put, right? So having heard that, here again is what you all drew for us. So pearly gates, the entrance into the promised land, the only access through those pearly gates into the future that God has for us through believing in God as our Savior. So there is some original art from Joel. So when you see him, tell him you saw it and you were pretty impressed. All right? And then I got this from Wayne. So Wayne took a picture of a place that through his life has been somewhere that has been a treasure for him where he has found an experience of the presence of God and so sent me the picture so I can show it. Wayne, comments on it or tell me what was it there? That's up at our old family cottage, and it's the dead end of our road. Our main lake spills in underneath the road, and it's just a, a marvelous place. I used to sit right where the grass was and just listen to the water come down, and I brought my dad there the last time we were up at the cottage, and we shared a, a beautiful moment together, and yeah, yeah, that's my vision right there. Thank you think they'll still be like that in the future? I think so too. Even better. More glorious, right? This is from Anne. Um, flamingos from the Dominican Republic. And boy, you hardly need to say anything by way of comment. Do you look at the glory of those colors? I mean, what, what was God thinking? There, there's, there's some things in, in nature that you look and you think, that's extravagant. But there's some that you look and you say, wow, the color of that, the beauty of that, the splendor of that. I, um, one of the most exciting things I ever did was I flew with a missionary pilot up the, uh, the Rift Valley. And we flew over a lake, and a flock of flamingos rose under us from the lake, a huge pink cloud moving along under us. And it was just glorious. Again, See, they didn't have to be orange or pink. He could have made them just gray, like he made all the Canadian birds. There's a reason. I, I get that. And if that didn't impress you, again then from Anne, this, the absolute pride and arrogance of the male peacock. Who draws away any predators from his wife and family by the sheer glory of his feathers raised in their, in their view. And I love this. This is a watercolor by Anne of a butterfly. Isn't that beautiful? 
And again, she captures the colors, the splendor, the intricacy of what God has created. This one's from Kevin. Stylized, a postcard from the future, Carmel by the Sea. Tell us about it, Kevin. What do you love about it? How would you improve on these things? Right? Um, in the New Kingdom, if there is no need for the sun, do we miss sunrises and sunsets? And if we do, it will only be because the glory of the Lamb will be even brighter and more vivid than the sun. Right? So we read about the New Jerusalem, there's no need for the sun because the Lamb will be the light. Wow. And re remember in creation that light um, preceded sun. There was light before there was the sun and moon. Light is a phenomenon that is originated in God. You don't believe me, so you better go back and read Genesis 1 and see if I'm right. But how much more glorious will it be when we find ourselves with the kingdom having arrived? And the constitution of the kingdom will be the Beatitudes. Ten out of ten times, every one of us will behave in a way that is characterized by these Beatitudes. Our values deep in our hearts and souls will be expressed in our speech, in our behavior, in our relationships, in these ways that Jesus began his whole ministry with. The Beatitudes were Jesus' first public discourse. Sermon on the Mount was the first thing that he taught publicly. And it then, we have to believe, was very strategic in sending his apostles and calling people to follow him and to welcome his kingdom that he was introducing and inaugurating. So we do very well to go to the Beatitudes and say, here are eight sayings that were the linchpin of Jesus' teaching about his kingdom. If you go to Israel now, you can go to the Mount of Beatitudes and there's a chapel. It has eight sides, of course, and it, it has a lovely vista looking all the way down over the Sea of Galilee. And you can just imagine Jesus saying the things that he said. Now, he taught the whole Sermon on the Mount there. But the key pin or the linchpin of the Sermon on the Mount was his set of Beatitudes. Blessed are those who. So we do very, very well, I think, to meditate deeply and ponder long what it means to be these kinds of people. We're, we're going to work our way through them in terms of understanding them to the extent that we can. And then for Lent, we will practice some spiritual disciplines around readings and prayers concerning the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and see how, do, how can we really get into the meaning of these things? How can they soak into our hearts and lives? So blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. And now blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek is not a word that's in our vernacular, is it? Did, you, you don't normally say, I, I really like him because he's meek. That's not one of the eyes on the, on the feathers of the peacock, right? It doesn't come to mind. So what does it mean, first of all, to say, blessed are the meek? What is this characteristic called meekness? Um, if I were to just take a straw poll, do you think that the word meek, generally in our thinking, is a positive term or a negative term? You know the right answer, but which way might you be inclined to go if we weren't in the middle of the teaching of Jesus? How many would say, yep, meek sounds more to me like a negative term? Okay, like he's meek. And how many would think, no, meek's a positive term? Yeah, because you know the answer, right? But, 
So, but that, that's, that's honest, isn't it, where we, we think, well, meek. Because actually, so far, we've not thought that the way that Jesus characterizes blessed people are positive characteristics on the face of them. We, we don't think it's good to be poor, right? That, that's not a positive word in our experience and vernacular. We don't think it's good to be mourning because we've lost something. So we might also just carry on and say, and yeah, being meek, unless you can convince me otherwise, that's not a positive term. The person who is meek, I think we tend to, to connote uh, as someone who can be sort of um, taken advantage of, doesn't speak up for himself or herself, um, is, is kind of wishy-washy and you don't know where they stand, right? So it's, it's that sort of you know, group of, of words that I think have traveled along, along with the word meek. The, the, the same word can be translated gentle, if that becomes more helpful, and the same word can be translated humble, if that can be helpful. Um, and what Jesus is now saying is that along with those who are poor in spirit and along with those who mourn, those who are humble, gentle, meek, um, they are also blessed. In fact, they will inherit the earth. And you say, no, that's not likely true. I mean, meek people don't inherit anything. Meek people let things get taken away from them. Meek people are disinherited. Meek people don't stand up and say, wait a minute, stop, right? Meek people just let things happen to them. And yet Jesus says, well, here's a surprise for you. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. People who are meek will be in charge of the earth. So we scratch our heads because if you think about who are the people who have been able to gain power or um, authority or uh, rank or opportunity, it, we rarely say, it, yeah, it, it's meek people that we think are usually lined up and are being nominated for those positions. We see that it's powerful people, right? It's people who are strong. It's people who have great resources that seem to be the ones that inherit those institutions of society that can be inherited. And Jesus says, um, if you haven't figured this out so far, the constitution of the kingdom will surprise you at every turn. And the requirements of the characteristics for those who are blessed in the kingdom will surprise you each time. But they are worth your intense thought and meditation and practicing into your life. So blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Let's, let's get into this a little bit more and see that in, in the New Testament there is one theological portion that is a complete exploration or exegesis of this notion of meekness or humility or gentleness. Um, we're going to sort of land on the word humility um, as, as the one that is, is maybe the, the most operative term in terms of our behavior. That what Jesus is saying is that he's calling for us to be people who are humble. We can become humble in one of two ways. We can be made humble. We might say that's being humiliated. Or we can aspire to being humble, um, desiring the Spirit's work in us to make that fruit apparent in our lives. And as we land on the word humble as a really good sort of parallel to the word meek and one that we might get some traction with, 
we do well anything to make sure we understand what it's not, right? So being humble is not being humiliated. It's, it's not uh, having something forced upon us, some demeanor forced upon us by external circumstances or by, by other people around us. That's not what's applauded. In fact, that gets into the territory of justice and mercy and equity and all of those other things. But what we're looking for is a self-chosen um, demeanor and set of behaviors that we would call humility. So Paul says, um, I'm going to argue with you about how you should behave towards one another on the basis of the example of Jesus who showed us entirely how to be humble. And we would say, well, we had better not take exception with Jesus as the example of how to be because clearly that is the best way to be and would be desirable for all of us. So in what ways was he humble? What did it look like to see the humility of Jesus? And here's what we come across in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, I want you to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So what should we not do? We should not be selfish. Okay, that's good. That's probably a given. We, we should not be vainglorious. We should not be filled with empty conceit. Um, and that, that's a word that has, it's full of drama. Um, it means to be pretentious and puffed up and, you know, self-deceived uh, about your greatness, how important you are, right? I'm here. You can start the meeting now, right? I'm here. We can fix things. And how many examples are there around us of people who are just puffed up, right? They're just full of themselves. We hear all the stories. The guy that goes up to the counter at the airport and says, do you know who I am? Expecting that if they know who he is, he's going to get that upgrade or he's going to get that seat, that whatever it is. And the person says, sir, I don't know who you are. Let me ask my supervisor. And the supervisor comes over and the person says, do you know who this man is? And she said, no. But sometimes if you look at your ticket, the name is on there. It'll, just, it'll, it'll come. Right? <laughs> do you know who I am? Right? Vainglorious, puffed up. And Paul says, don't be that way. And we say, yeah, we agree. Don't be that way. But when we get down inside our souls, we realize that a whole lot of our thinking goes on around what people think of us. Right? And how we compare ourselves with others and how we fit in the mix, where we are in the pecking order. Um, the question on the airplane, so what is it that you do? When you tell me what you do, I'll be able to know how important you are and, and how and where you fit. Um, we once had a, a Korean pastor on our team, and Youngdo was his name, and it was always fun with Youngdo because... In Korean culture, you have to know how old everyone is around you so you know how to behave. So you behave a certain way towards who, those who are your elders and another way towards those who are your juniors. And if you behave towards your elders as though they were your juniors, you will be in big cultural trouble. So we would sort of um, tease young Do and not let him find out how old people are and watch him in meetings, being full of angst because he was trying to sort who 
is the important voice here? Who is the one that needs to be deferred to here so we can go forward with conversation and, and decisions, right? Well, that's just a cultural norm that you know, has been codified around how we all behave. Who's important here and how important am I here? Um, am I the most important person in the room or am I the smartest person in the room? And who will deny that you have never been in a meeting where you really believed that you were the smartest guy in the room? Because that's the way we come into the room, thinking we're the smartest guy. And sometimes what people say actually validates that. We're pretty sure that we are the smartest guy in the room when we hear what other people think. right? You've never had that experience either, right? So what Paul is doing here is saying, this is not something that gets imposed on you. But this is something that you bring to mind that says every time you're interacting with one another, you must not act out of selfishness, which is just the core of trying to figure out what is meaningful about you and to you in this situation and among these, these other human beings. Or empty conceit, where you have to say, I, I need a really clear view of myself which may well involve me having to stop thinking of an answer so quickly to what everybody else says, to discipline myself to sit there quietly and listen and try to understand what someone has said without the bias that I already know that I know the answer and I'm smarter than her, right? So we leave all of those things behind and it is not that we are not important. It is not that we do not have answers. It is not even that we are not the smartest person in the room. All of those may be true. But Paul says that's not the way you deal with one another if you're going to embrace this characteristic of the kingdom, humility. So you have to be willing to set self aside and say this is not about me impressing people. This is not about me getting my way. This is not about me bringing the answer that I wish these people had come to and we didn't have to have these long meetings about it. But with humility of mind, he says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, he's going to talk about Jesus as the example of this. So we have a forensic opportunity where he says Jesus was like this. So I asked the question, when Jesus was in community with human beings, did he have an actual regard that thought that people were more important than him. Because the truth is they weren't, right? But Paul says, you have to behave the way Jesus did. And this is what it is I'm trying to give an example to you about. You need to leave selfishness behind. You need to get rid of your you know, puffed upness and have the humility of mind to regard another person as more important than you. What if the other person is not more important than you? The other persons were not more important than Jesus. But what Paul says that the discipline is that you regard other people as more important than you. And one of the ways Jesus practiced that out was to say, if you want, if you want to learn truth, study children. Well, children had no place in Israel in those days. They were to be seen and not heard. So, are you serious? Consider children more important than me? They're not more important than me. True. But regard them as more important than you so that you will be practicing humility and God will be able to use and bless you because when you get that, then you get to inherit the earth. 
Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. My agenda has to be submitted to others' agendas. It has to be weighed against what is good in other people's lives. So having said that, Paul goes on and says, I- I'm going to show you exactly what this was like in a person. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word attitude just simply means way of thinking. It, it's the way your mind is bent to think and you are bent to behave. So this is a rule of life that Paul says comes from Jesus. And Jesus articulated it in the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek. Although he existed in the form of God. Now, in, in the Greek language, there are two words that give us the core word form. Um, one is a word that means the, the inner actual essence of a person, the true nature of a person. And the other is a word that means the appearance of a person, what a person looks like. And they're both good words. One is not a, a great word and the other a terrible word, but they're very different words. And Paul uses them both in this passage to teach us something very important. So he says, although he existed in the form of God, and that's the word that talks about the inner essence of a person. So we could translate this, and I've commented on this before, that um, we could say, although he existed as God through and through, so that we have a theology about Christ, that he was absolutely God, right? He was thoroughly God. He he was not less than God. Um, He was not less important than God. In fact, he was the creator or the creator of all that there is, we're told, And at the end of things, God is going to enthrone him as king of kings, lord of lords. And he will be seen to be sovereign lord. So we could scoot through a whole lot of verses in the New Testament that show us that Jesus um, not only believed that he was God, but that he proved he was God. He said that that's who he was. And then by all of the things that he did, he gave them evidence. And they would not believe what he was saying. But they clearly understood what he was saying because they were trying to kill him for that claim. That's the single reason they wanted to to execute him was that he claimed to be God. So he claimed to be God. They knew that he claimed to be God. And the whole theology of Christianity is that Jesus is thoroughly God. So it's not a rank of three beings. God's the most important. Jesus is second important. And the Holy Spirit is third. It doesn't go like that. They are all co-equal, right? They are all thoroughly God. In Jesus dwells all of the Godhead in one. We will not understand this. And we shouldn't expect to understand it. But the truth that is declared to us is that Jesus is altogether God. He is the full trinity um, and not less than God. And so Paul says even though he existed like that. So he doesn't say even though he was God's son. He says although he was God through and through. He did something. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So at some point, Jesus considered that he had the prerogative of retaining all of the privileges of deity because they were his. He is and was the most important being in the universe. But he didn't consider those rights and privileges to be such that he would hold on to them because there was something greater that he wanted to do, which was ridding the world of corruption in us and in our planet, right? So even though he was God through and through, 
he didn't consider that to be something that he would hold on to. So he didn't need to sit at the table and say, before we start, does everybody know who I am? Right? Do you know who I am? Um, do you know that at the end of the day, I, I will call the decision on this because I am the most important person? And you say, that, yeah, that, that stuff doesn't really happen. It really does happen, doesn't it? I, I was leading a small group in Dallas, Texas one time, and there was a person in our group, so it was a group of like 10 people, and I was leading a discussion and then had to get some conclusions up on a whiteboard. So there was a secretary for the group standing by the whiteboard, and we took people's comments. And about halfway through, one of the persons in the, the group made a comment, and I didn't follow it up by asking for it to be put on the whiteboard. And he said, write that down. So there's this sort of silence in the group. I said, well, I, I, I don't think that the group had a consensus around that. And he says, I don't care. Write that down. So I thought, okay, I'm a volunteer here. I don't need this hassle. So I said there, and he said, I'm paying for this. Write it down. Ah, uh, he was paying for the whole spiel. So what he wanted me to know was this. He was the most important person in the group, and he paid for the right to get his way. And we're all like that. It's just that he admitted it, right? We're all in this struggle about how important am I? Can I get my way? My way is the right way. My thoughts are the most accurate thoughts. Uh, and Paul says, and then here's Jesus. Even though, and you want to challenge his claim? Even though he was God through and through, he didn't demand his rights and privileges. He never, ever once um, said, I, um, I'm sorry, I have to speak here. Do you know who I am? He was willing to leave those rights and privileges entirely behind. So one of the first things we learn is that being a servant, being humble, has nothing to do with the truth of who we are. In fact, the more we understand who we really are, the more we're actually able to live into humility which is a crazy conundrum to figure out how that can be true. But here's where Jesus showed us that in spades. In John 13, it says, Because he knew that he had come from the Father, that he was returning to the Father, and that all authority had been given to him, he got up from the table and took a basin and towel and washed their feet. Now, the, the grammar of that is clear as anything. The logic of it isn't. Because he knew he came from the Father and he was returning to the Father and all authority was his. Because he knew those things, he washed their feet. So the principle there is that when we actually know who we are, how important we are, how loved we are, what our future is, when we know that and we're confident in that, we don't need other people to, to kowtow to that. Because what what's a group at a committee table going to give you that is more significant than your identity as a son or daughter of God? So we don't need that from one another because we have it from our Father. And Jesus did not need it. He didn't need the disciples because they were squabbling about this very thing. What were you talking about on the way? We were talking about who was the greatest. Sorry. Or our mom had just come for an audience and said, could you give my boys a place at your left hand and right hand in your kingdom. And Jesus goes, oh my goodness, how long do I have to put up with this? That's not the way it is in my kingdom. If you want to be great, you have to be less. If you want to be, it's the opposite of, of what you think. 
And Jesus said, I have shown you, and, and I will show you that. So even though he knew he was God through and through, and here Paul goes on, and careful with his grammar, he says, he emptied himself, to taking the form of a bondservant. And, woo! Bond of a, form of a bondservant um, is, is the same word, morphe, at the core, which means even though he was God through and through, he didn't think that those rights and privileges had to be reserved, but he took on the in, through and through nature and form of a servant. As, as thoroughly and completely as he was God, he thoroughly and completely became a servant. Paul could have said, even though he was God through and through, he took on the outer appearance of a servant, right? He came and took the role of a servant, but he wants to press us home and say, Jesus actually took the, the complete identity of a servant, of humility, um, even though he was God. And then, so we know that he had other words at his disposal, he goes on and says, being made in the likeness of men. And there he uses the word schema, which is the, the outward appearance. He could have used that very easily and handily on the notion of the servant. Even though he was God through and through, he took on the form, the role of a servant. He doesn't say that. He said, even though he was God through and through, he took on the nature of a servant through and through and was made to look like a man. It doesn't mean that he wasn't also thoroughly a man, but that's not Paul's point here. He's not trying to argue for the humanity of Jesus. He's trying to argue for the servanthood of Jesus, for the humility of Jesus. And so he says, I know I have other words to use, but I'm not going to. And you need to think the same way as Jesus did, if you're going to get close to the kingdom and close to the characteristics that um, God is delighted with in his kingdom. He was found in appearance as a man. Again, the schema, the outside word. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul says, here is a case study of the way that you should relate to one another and to everyone around you. Humility is not any indication of your true identity, your true rank, your true nature. You are all that you are. But if you're going to be like Jesus, you have to pack that away and say that I don't bring that to the table. I don't bring that to the relationship. I don't bring that to the marriage. I don't bring that to the family. I don't bring that to the job. There's a book entitled Humilitas. Um, it's another attempt at being clever and pulling a, a Latin word out of the hat. Um, subtitle, A Lost Key to Life, Love, and Leadership. In that, this character, John Dixon, says, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And I've mulled that over, and I think, it, I think it's good. Right? So humility is not... Um, is not not being important, not being resourceful, not being smart, not, not being keen. It, it's none of those. Um, humility is saying, whatever I have to bring to the table, I will bring it for the sake of others. So there you, you get to use those resources. But the thing you have to check regularly is, to what degree is self doing this? You, know, you have to ask, are they going to be impressed when I bring these resources? Well, if they are, then you're on the wrong track. You, you've got to, what, what we saw in that whole thing about um, poverty of spirit 
is that we have these two columns, what I have and what I received, and they're the same lists. So I have to regularly check myself and ask, okay, so I'm bringing this resource. Maybe it's the resource of my, of my intelligence. Maybe it's the resource of my finances, of my time, um, my brilliance, whatever it is. Um, when I bring those, how am I bringing them? Am I bringing them to liberally give them to others because they're not mine? So poverty of spirit is a good precondition for humility. When you say, what do I have that I didn't receive? So I hold it loosely, and I check myself every time I'm inclined to take credit. And we are well inclined to take credit. We all want the thank you phone call, right? Do you remember Seinfeld, uh, the thank you note after the baseball game? I, need, we, I, I didn't say thank you. You didn't say thank you. Well, I didn't know I had to say thank you. I thought it was you just gave it to me from the goodness of your heart. Yeah, I did. No, not if you need the thank you call. So we say, I, there's nothing that I have that I didn't receive. So it's yours. And I will, I will put it on the table. I will put it in, in this relationship. I will, I will put it, mix it into this task with humility that says it's for you, honestly and thoroughly for you, that this is brought here. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status. Do you know who I am? Doesn't matter. What's your job? Doesn't matter. It's interesting. And it is about you. But it's not the thing. The thing is that you are a person of the character that says, I have nothing that I didn't receive. If you're impressed with me, um, be impressed with the opportunity that many others gave me. The people who went before me and, you know, blazed a trail for me. The fact that my parents immigrated here and it was at their cost and yet it has been a blessing to me to be able to be here and then do well. I, what I have, I received all of it. So I'm not going to pretend that my status or my importance should be brought into play here. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Think of others as more important than you. Think of others' opinion as more important than yours. It might not be better than yours, but it's more important than yours that you listen to it, understand it, and uh, feed into the process. So, is meekness a good word now? No, we've chosen humility and said, is humility a good word? Yes, it is, right? So go forth and be humble. <laughs>